0: Good evening. We're on to week five, the uh, last week, and uh, it's actually been about two months, I think, from fortnight. We've been working our way through the Bible, um, bit by bit. Um, I notice there are actually a couple of new people, I think, here tonight um, who have missed various weeks. But don't worry. You know, we are looking at the end of the story this week, but we will, at the beginning, do a little bit of a recap to give you a little bit of an idea of what we've been talking about. But I want to take you right back to week one, because actually we've got a lot of recapping to do now on week five. On week one, I use the analogy of a film to describe how we could perhaps approach talking about the Bible, learning about it. In films, there's often a build-up, a plot, the characters, they develop bit by bit. There's often a problem situation, a hero battling against diversity who had a critical turning point seems to have failed. And that's the point we have now reached in our Bible overview. In the beginning, God created, God the king created the earth and everything was good. But then we learnt that man sinned in the world and mankind became fallen. And their relationship with God was damaged. And God's kingship was replaced by man's desire to rule himself. So what did God do in response to this? Did he abandon his people? No, he made a pledge to Abraham that all nations would be blessed through him. The descendants of Abraham, the people of Israel, became God's chosen people who he rescued from slavery in Egypt and he delivered them to the promised land of Canaan. But even then, after rescuing them, the people of Israel failed to recognize God as their true authority. They grumbled against him whilst on the way to Canaan and they disobeyed his commandments. And then they asked for worldly kings to rule over them. God allowed Israel to have their kings, and he remained faithful to his pledge, but the people continued to turn away from him. With the consequence that they were exiled by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. But God still remained faithful. He gathered the remnant of of Israel from exile and he spoke to them through the prophets of restoration and of a king greater than that of King David or Solomon. As we know, that king was Jesus, God's own son, Sent in fulfilment of Old Testament prophecies, he declared that he was to sent to spread the good news of the kingdom of God come to earth. Many thought he would be a strong, military militarist king who would overthrow the rulers and authorities of the day. And so those who feared Jesus plotted to kill him. And in obedience to God, the Father's will. Jesus allowed himself to be crucified, though he had done no wrong. And as he died, the charge against him was placed above his head. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. On the cross, Jesus, the sinless man, took on himself the punishment for our sins, which allowed us to be, restored, be in a restored relationship with God. But we've got to be really careful at this point that we don't try to finish the story at this point. This is not the end of the story. It is merely the beginning of the end. We're going to watch a film clip now from a very popular film. If you haven't seen the film, you're sure to have read the book from The Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe. The film doesn't finish there we have far to go in the film the evil witch has not been defeated at this point though it is probably clear to us that her days are now numbered and elsewhere in this film at the very same time there's a battle going on between the forties of good and evil it's still raging and Narnia well Narnia whilst it seems to be recovering has not been restored at this stage to its former glory In the same way, Jesus dying on the cross is not the end of the story. At mankind's fall after creation, death came into the world. Three days later, after Jesus' death, God raised him to life and death was defeated. But the full reality of that victory is not yet apparent. We still have far to go. Jesus actually told his disciples that he would return one day. In John he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Jesus will return, and at that time, the world will be judged for its wrongdoings. In Thessalonians, Paul writes He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. And from the majesty of his power. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people. And to be marveled at among all those who have believed. It's tough teaching. The Bible talks about his return as a judge. But the Bible also talks about the restoration of creation. The restoration of the world, the everlasting kingdom. The clearest passage in Revelation I am making everything new. The story doesn't end with Jesus' death on the cross. And the story doesn't actually end with each of us finishing our earthly life and joining God in a distant heavenly realm. The story ends with the return of Jesus, the final victory over death, and the wondrous restoration of God's creation on earth I don't know what your experience is but in my experience this is something that Christians rarely ever talk about we talk a lot about heaven where we go when we die but do we talk very much about the restoration, about Jesus' return and a new creation and a number of times throughout this course I've spoken about how sometimes we have a Overtly, a view of the Bible which is really from our worldly perspective rather than from God's broader perspective. And I think this is sometimes what we do with the story of God's plan for restoration. We talk about what happens when we die, but not what God will do at the end of time, in the fullness of, of time. And so I want to take just a chance for us to break into our discussion groups now. Just to have five, ten minutes of discussion before we have a a time of worship. And in your groups, I want you just to talk about just two questions at this time. How much do you think about God's restored kingdom? And if you do or haven't, or what will it be like? A restored, perfect kingdom and creation restored. So I'll give you five minutes, five, ten minutes just to discuss that in your groups. I've probably kicked off quite a conversation with you because I know this one always does with my small group I wonder how much I sometimes think about God's restored kingdom I, I don't think about it very often actually but I, when I do notice it is often in um, worship because suddenly in the middle of a worship song i would see these words talking about Jesus' return and um, new earth and things like that, and that's often because we don't read these passages very often, like Revelation. But look out for it when you're in, you know, in times of worship. Um, I have no idea what Adam's got planned, and whether there'll be anything there. We'll, we'll find out. But um, I think for me, there was a time when I really got thinking about this when I was sort of in a prayer meeting with some other people, and they w- and <clears throat> we were thinking of all the people in the world who were suffering and what we could actually do about it. And we prayed and prayed. And okay, and we can maybe go and help some people give some of our money. We can maybe go abroad and help them in this way, bring peace to the world by being in summits. But I came to myself a bit of a conclusion that the only thing that's really going to wipe all the evil and suffering and nastiness of this world out is Jesus returning. And that was one of the few times that I have ever gone... Jesus, come, I start understand, to understand what it meant to pray for Jesus' return today to make it all stop. I think I heard a couple of discussion groups saying, oh, well, there's actually not much that that much written about it. We actually get into a bit of a guessing game of what it would be like. I think that's completely true. We don't really know the fullness of it. We can glimpse some of it in our in our knowledge of God in the absence of evil and suffering. But we often can't fully realise what it will be like. But it is important for us to have the perspective of where things are going in order for us to understand fully where we are now. Because actually, yes, we do need to see the Bible from a wider perspective, but we also have to work out how that applies to our lives today. And that's where the majority of the rest of the New Testament comes in. The books, or most of them are letters, um, were written by the early church. Followers of Jesus living in the time before the return of Jesus, in the same way that we are. In fact, they were almost more expected than us, because actually they thought it was going to be a very, very imminent thing in their lifetime, maybe. Maybe. For us, maybe since we've had a couple of thousand years, we get a bit complacent and think, oh, it's probably going to be another couple of thousand. But for them, they thought, oh, it could be coming tomorrow or the day after. We have a very different perspective on it. So it's good to look at their views on what they thought was going to happen. And we also want to see what actually happened to them, the disciples. We're living in the same time as them and waiting for the return of Jesus. Jesus died and his followers were effectively scattered. But what happened then? Well, they sort of met back together and following the resurrection, (coughs) Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples. Jesus had died at Passover so that when he returns to heaven, it's probably around day 43-44 after his death, okay, 43-44, that's a number to remember, Jesus tells his disciples that they should wait in Jerusalem. And now about this time, people were starting to arrive in Jerusalem because 50 days after Passover was a major Jewish festival called the Feast of Weeks. Now this had adopted had a new name given to it, a more casual name, based on the word 50th, which actually... It was Pentecost. Again, one of these things, we think Pentecost is all about what we know about it, but actually it had a name. It was about 50 days after Passover, a Jewish celebration, a feast. So for the Jews, it was just another festival, but on this occasion, the word was to acquire a new meaning. The disciples were gathered together in one place. Often people portray this as a place as an upstairs room in which the disciples had been meeting in Acts 1. But actually the choice of the phrase, "altogether in one place, together with the events that follow, actually some commentators suggest that maybe they were somewhere more public, such as the temple. A place we are told at the end of Luke that they continued to meet at. In Acts 2 it says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Peter stands up, addresses the crowd, and that day 3,000 people... Became Christians. An amazing day, an amazing gift. That even though Jesus had actually told the disciples about it, I don't think they were fully expecting it or fully understood, like often is the case with the disciples. And what Acts 1, he had told them, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for my gift, for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water In addition, not only Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit coming, the prophets told of a restoration, and three specifically talked about the pouring out of the Spirit to the restored people. In Isaiah, But now listen, O Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen. This is what the Lord says, He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out poor water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Ezekiel says, Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. For though I sent them into exile among the nations, I will gather them to their own land not leaving any behind I will no longer hide my face from them for I will pour out my spirit on the house of Israel declares the sovereign Lord and finally a passage from Joel which is the very one that Peter uses when he addresses the crowd at Pentecost and afterwards I will pour out my spirit on all people Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. The Holy Spirit is a sign to and and a sign of God's restored people. The covenant made to Abraham and confirmed to David of a blessing to all nations was fulfilled through Jesus. But this Holy Spirit is more than just a sign. It is a help and a guide to us. Jesus said in John, If you love me and obey what I command, so you will obey what I command, and I will give, ask the Father and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you and the Holy Spirit is a transforming presence in us Galatians says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness and self-control against such things there is no law those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passion and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Last week we spoke about Jesus, the King. And this, in the past, we've talked about God, the King. And this brought up in discussion last week, I know, the discussion of the, of the Trinity None of us will fully understand the three-in-one nature of God, and I'm not sure why we would as mere created rather than creator. But if God the Trinity is king, then God the Father is king, God the Son is king, and so I would suggest that God the Holy Spirit is king. As such, as Christians, the king now dwells in us. Jesus said, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. Nor will people say, Here it is, or There it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians that he, Christ, has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal. Through It's quite an honour. We are to be carriers of the kingdom of God, ambassadors of his message to the world. God doesn't just ask us for repentance, but for service and obedience. A regular debate in our country at the moment is, what are the requirements for British citizenship should be? What should we expect of people? It's one thing to be handed a passport and told you may enter a country. I think Many of us think that it's reasonable to expect some kind of level of responsibility when when you become a citizen. You might expect them to know something about their adopted nation. Some people say they should learn the language. Maybe they should be an advocate of the country to others. They should certainly maybe be on its side and not against it. And we might even expect someone to be willing to defend their country. What does it mean to take on citizenship? What does God enforce on us in return for our citizenship? Actually, God enforces us to do absolutely nothing. He forces nothing. A fundamental concept for us to take hold of when looking at our relationship to God is that God the King All our response is about free will It is a choice we have to make Think about it Adam and Eve were allowed to make a choice The people of Israel And the kings of Israel They were all allowed to make a choice Whether they would follow God And his authority And so we have that same choice to make What does it look like to follow God And to choose to live under his authority Well The kings and lots of the people of Israel didn't go God's way. But there were individuals who really lived by a life of faith. And I fundamentally think that's what it's all about. Faith like Abraham's. Where God told him to go and he obeyed. He didn't even understand why. Faith like that of Moses. Who God used to rescue his people from Egypt. He really didn't feel he was up to the job He was just one man, but God sent him, said go, and he did it. had some reservations, but he did it. Faith like that of the disciples who left behind their jobs and their lives to follow Jesus. Jesus commanded. They did it. They didn't fully understand what was going to happen. And it's not to say our lives will directly mirror those of Abraham, Moses, or the disciples. But a life of service is one made completely available to whatever God's plan is for each one of us. A life where we ask God what he wants us to do, and we then listen and obey. A life of service won't always be easy. I would be lying to you if I said it was. I think if you look at the Bible, it's hard to see any character in the Bible whose life was always easy. But we talked about in the first week, about a shield, God the shield. We must remember that God is not a distant, impersonal God, but rather he's our shield, our protector, with us and going ahead of us. And where does the Bible fit into this life? Well, Paul sums it up very nicely in 2 Timothy. All scripture is God-breathed, And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And a key phrase here is all scripture. Going right back to the first week. Which bits do we read? Which bits do we not? All scripture is God breathed and useful. I hope in this course you've come to appreciate... That God has provided the Bible as a complete package. The whole story. Right through from one creation to the restoration of his creation. Jesus is the highlight in the middle, the high point. But it's a story of rebellion. Of people turning away from God and turning back. It contains a single story of one God. It's not a matter of just having the Old Testament as sort of one God and the New Testament, that's a different story. It's one story, one plan to restore a fallen creation and a fallen people to himself. And so I pray for you guys that God will enable you to read and understand more of the Bible because it will thoroughly equip you for every good work. in finishing this week I, every week I've asked a question you know, trying to put something to trigger you make you think a little bit but this week there is no question for me I decided it's not the, my place I wanted to give you a chance to reflect and to listen to God has God spoken to you in this, during this course what does he want you to hear now what final question does God have for you